getting used to it. There we go. Open your scriptures to uh, Hebrews 13. And as you're opening there, I just want to encourage you, if you're a note taker, to grab one of these. If, if we run out, there's about 30 of them. If we run out, they're like Doritos. We'll buy more. And so uh, I encourage you to grab some, grab one and take some notes in the next uh, sermon series, which is Matthew. Please bow and pray with me for one moment. Oh, Father God, uh, it is a fearful thing to stand up here and proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that the work and the exegesis that was done this week will be correct and that you will pierce our hearts and minds by your word that is preached through me. Lord, help me to fade back and you to come forward and speak to your people. Love your people. Instruct your people. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 26th at 5.22 a.m. in 1966, a massive earthquake shook this city of Tashkent behind the Iron Curtain in Uzbekistan. According to Soviet news, at the time there was minimal loss of life But there was massive infrastructure damage, massive loss of home and building. It is estimated that in mere minutes, 300,000 homes were obliterated. Hundreds of thousands of people homeless. It took years to rebuild the city. On the 10th anniversary of the earthquake in 1976, a statue, this statue was unveiled in remembrance of the earthquake. And in typical Cold War Soviet style, the statue conveys a stoic courage amid the earthquake and the aftermath. The statue is meant to convey we have survived, we will rebuild. By brute determination, we will continue to live here even though the ground was shaken. Brothers and sisters, we live in an unshakable kingdom. We live in an eternal, everlasting kingdom of God. We live in a kingdom that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what verse 28 in chapter 12 that we just left off with last week is telling us. Look at verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that does, cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, what the author of the Hebrews is saying, what God's word is saying, is that because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, because of the gospel that we believe, we've received an eternal, unshakable everlasting kingdom of God. We've been transferred into that kingdom that cannot be shaken like Uzbekistan. And that is where the author has brought us to after 12 chapters. So given that, how should we live? Given that we've been transferred into this unshakable kingdom, how should we conduct ourselves in this new kingdom? 
What are the new ethics of this kingdom that we've been transferred into? That's what chapter 13 is all about. How are we going to live in this unshakable kingdom? Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 13. How should we live? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, the author has brought us through 12 chapters of basically explaining the gospel to us. He has, he has told us right from the beginning that, that Christ is greater than all. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That's, about, that's what we're going to be celebrating in a couple weeks, right? That's what we're going to be remembering for those weeks leading up to Christmas. God becoming man. And because of that, the author of the Hebrews says he's greater than the angels. Chapter 1. He's greater than the patriarchs. He's greater than, than Moses, chapter 2 and 3. He's greater than Joshua, chapter 4. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than, than the whole Levitical priesthood. And, and in fact, he's great because of what he has done for us. And the author goes into detail on that in chapters 9 and 10. He created a greater covenant in a greater tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, with an infinitely greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. Providing a greater city for us to live in, the new Jerusalem. We just covered that last week. A greater kingdom to inhabit. An unshakable kingdom. That's how he, what he calls it. And now in the closing moments of his letter, he turns to how a Christian should live in that unshakable kingdom. And he says there are three ways a believer should live differently than those living in the world. Three ways. We're going to cover two of them today and one of them next week. But three ways in chapter 13. First of all, we are to have a different kind of love, a different type of love. Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. We are to have a different type of love for each other, a brotherly love for each other. In First Peter 1, 22, God's word says, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. In Romans 12, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Stuart Oliott in his commentary writes, The Christian church is not an organization, a society, or a club. It is a brotherhood. All believers, even the ones we don't like, he says, are brothers, are family. We are to have a different type of love than the world has, brothers and sisters. A familial type of love. A family type of love. Jesus was describing that to his disciples in the upper room, wasn't he? He said, a new command I give to you is I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by love, by the mark of love, by the mark of a different type of love than the world loves, people will know that you are my disciples. It's to be a different type of love. Love is the mark of a true Christian. In today's society, many people get tattoos. They want to mark their body. They want to, to, in some way, mark themselves out from the rest of society. I've been asked on more than one occasion whether tattoos, a Christian should get tattoos. I'm actually not going to answer that for you. But I believe Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and 11. I believe he does. But I will say that there's a mark that we're explicitly told in Scripture to have. And that is the mark of love. That's the Christian tattoo. Love. Francis Schaeffer began one of his books saying, throughout the centuries men have displayed many types of symbols that they are Christians. They have worn marks on their labels of their coats, worn chains about their necks, and even had special haircuts. But there's a much better sign, he writes. It is a universal mark that is to last throughout all the ages of the church until Jesus returns. And that mark is love. That is the Christian tattoo, brothers and sisters. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, spends most of his time in that epistle just giving us marks of a true true Christian. You want to know what a true Christian looks like? Go home today, this afternoon, and just read 1 John. It's five chapters. It won't take you that long. But the emphasis is a, a Christian looks like this. A Christian has this mark. And he says over and over, a Christian believes that, that for example, God, uh, God came in the flesh. He says in another place, Christians walk in the light, not darkness. In other, in other words, they, they live transparent lives. In another place, he says, Christians hate sin. They realize that there is sin. A Christian does not love the world, he says in another place. A Christian loves truth. A Christian perseveres. A Christian claims to be a sinner. But the main theme that John hammers over and over and over again throughout his letter, it's like a a golden thread that goes throughout 1 John, is that a Christian loves his brothers and sisters. You want to know what a Christian looks like? He loves the family of God. As a matter of fact, he says it in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, chapter 3, verses 11, 14, 26, and 23, chapter 4, verse 7 and 12. 
And then finally in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 4, he writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he says, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must love his brother. I mean, what John is saying there is, listen, how a barometer, you want a barometer for your love of God? Do you really love God? We can all say we love God. I mean, I can get you all to say, let's stand up and say I love God. We can all say that all day long. But the real barometer is, do you love your brother and sister? And that's what Hebrews 3.1 is saying. The mark of one living in God's unshakable kingdom is that they really love their brothers and sisters in Christ. There were once two brothers who shared a field and a mill. Each night, they divided the grain they had ground that day. One brother lived alone and the other brother had a wife and a large family. Now the single brother thought to himself one day, it isn't fair that we divide the grain equally. I have only myself to care for, but my brother has all these children to care for. So each night, he would secretly take some of his grain and go to his brother's granary by night and pour it into his brother's granary. But the married brother said to himself, it isn't really fair that we divide the grain equally because I have children to provide for myself in my old age, but my brother has no one. What will he do? So every night, he secretly took some of his grain to his brother's granary and filled his brother's granary up. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's a flavor for what it looks like to love one another in brotherly love. But we're to show another kind of love, it says here as well in, in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, we all know elsewhere in Scripture that doesn't ex- hospitality does not exclude the family of God. As a matter of fact, in, at the end of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 10, it says that we should not weary from doing good, but when we have time to show good to everyone, especially the family of of believers, it says. In other words, there's a priority to the hospitality within the family of God. I have to tell you, um, one of the things that I go through each week is, as I'm preparing, the word of God is working on my own heart. And I was cut to the quick this week by looking at this verse. A couple weeks ago, I had my dear brother Ed over to watch a movie, and, and he came in and he sat down on the couch and he said, oh, I've, I've never been past your kitchen. This is a really nice living room. And it struck me. I'd never had him into my home. Here's the brother that I love. 
hadn't shown any hospitality towards him for years. I was led to a diagnostic question where hospitality is concerned within the body. And here it is. How many people sitting here could describe the inside of your home? We are to show hospitality as a priority to the family of God, but but here God's word is actually pointing us to an even more radical form of hospitality. We are to show hospitality to strangers. The the word here is philia xenos. We get our xenophobia, fear of strangers. We hear it's love of strangers, phileo, love, xenos, strangers. We're to love strangers. We're to show hospitality to strangers. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I encourage you to read this book. This is a really wonderful book. Hard book, challenging book, but a good book. Rosary Butterfield writes, and she calls hospitality radical, ordinary hospitality. I love that. Radical, ordinary hospitality. She explains it as seeing our homes not as ours, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? She describes radical, ordinary hospitality as building margins in our days for people. She describes it as living below our means so we have plenty to share. She describes it as not fussing over different worldviews at the table. So when you have people into your home, let them talk. And don't be offended. She describes radical, ordinary hospitality as building and keeping friendships with people that are different from from who we are. She explains it as hosting is not, a host is not embarrassed to receive help. Everything doesn't have to be perfect, well-planned. It's a realization that host and guest, she writes, are permeable roles. I love that. Just come on in. She describes radical, ordinary hospitality as not being afraid of strangers, even when some seem scary. She says, understanding the importance and far-reaching effects of the simple act of hospitality. I think that's the point that, that the writer is saying here when he says, when he mentions entertaining angels unaware. That's not meant as a, a, uh, something to prod us on or to guilt us into. It's meant simply to say that, that radical, amazing things happen when you practice radical, ordinary hospitality to strangers. Like conversions. Do you know how Rosaria Butterfield came to faith? She was a radical, liberal woman professor at a university who was a lesbian. And this pastor and his wife just invited her into the home to eat, to be. Not to preach at, just to be. And over the weeks and months... And yes, years, their witness brought her to faith. 
Yes, there were conversations about the gospel, of course. But it was simple, ordinary, but radical hospitality that brought her to faith. A third way we're to have a different kind of love in this unshakable kingdom is towards the oppressed or towards the afflicted. That's what verse 3 tells us. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In other words, we're to have a deep, loving empathy towards those who are mistreated, to those who are oppressed, to those who are in prison, even, even rightfully imprisoned. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 10, the author actually commends this group of Christians for actually doing this. He says, you visited people in prison. Uh, when I preach through that text... I think I told you that prison life 2,000 years ago was not at all what it is today. You didn't get clothes and three square meals and you couldn't play Xbox and watch TV. If you've seen the movie, the old movie, Ben-Hur, it gives a pretty good picture of how they treated them. They take Ben-Hur's two sisters and they put them in a dungeon and they forget about them. That's what prison was like. So you needed people to come and give you food and minister to you, company. We're called to love those kinds of forgotten people. By means of application, I I just want you to be praying with me for something. About a month ago, I had lunch with a man, Amiris family, um, uh, the husband of one of the families at Miris, and he had heard that we had done Alpha here, and he wanted to talk to me about Alpha because he has a prison ministry up in Ellsworth. And we sat, and I talked to him what we do at Alpha, the, the purpose of Alpha, the videos and things like that. And he thought, well, this, is a, this could work in, in the jail here. I go in every week, and we could do Alpha. And I was like, that, this is great. Let us know how we can help you. I left that meeting at Dunkin' Donuts in Ellsworth. I drive across the street. I park. I walk into, El- into Walmart. And there, standing at the entrance of Walmart, is this guy that I'd helped before called Ben. He's, he's partially deaf, mostly deaf. And I bump into him. I go, hey, Ben, how you doing? I'd helped him move up to Brewer from, from uh, Southwest. And I said, how have you been? He says, oh, good. And I said, oh, where have you been? I haven't seen you. Because he would come down and, and drop down and we would talk from time to time. I hadn't seen him in like two years. And he said, well, I've been away. I said, oh, where have you been? In typical Blake pressing style. And he goes, oh, well, I, I was in prison. And it just struck me. Now, I'm not the kind of guy, if you've been here in any length of time, you know I'm not the kind of guy that looks at, for, for signs around every corner and under every rock. But, but this might be a cloud and a megaphone moment. Here I leave a, a talk about bringing Alpha to Ellsworth Prison, and I bump into a guy who was in Ellsworth Prison. So I just, I just want you to pray. This might be a ministry that the Lord wants us to do here. It's it's not a glamorous ministry. It's a hard ministry. But this might be a way that we can actually fulfill this verse here. 
But not by bringing food to them, but by bringing spiritual food to the afflicted, to the oppressed, to those in prison. So be praying. The second major way we're to be different living in our unshakable kingdom is that we live a different kind of life. We live a different type of life. Now, there are many directions you can go in this. Many directions. We're to live a radical, radically different life in many different ways. But the author gives us two here. We're to live differently in regards to marriage, and we're to live differently in regards to money. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Here the author is saying, and God's word is saying, be different in regards to marriage. We have to remember that this letter was written into a culture that is equally as depraved as ours is where the sexual ethic is concerned. Perhaps more so. Intimacy barriers then were probably worse than they are today, if you can imagine that. Premarital sex was commonplace, little or no stigma attached to adultery, just like it is today. I remember getting a call from from a dear, dear friend of mine about 10 or 15 years ago. And he said, hey, listen, a a bunch of us guys are going to get together and we're going to go up to Hunter Hunter Ski Mountain in New York. I'd love it if you came. I said, oh, his Carrie, you know, are wives invited? He's like, no, this is a guy's weekend. I said, okay. Now, this is a friend of mine who is dear to me, but, but unsaved. And I knew this, the, the guys who were coming. And, and I knew what was going to go on there. They were going to relive their single days. They were going to go out to the bars and they were going to hit on women and they were going to pick up women. They were heavy drinking. And all these guys were married. And so I, I begged off that weekend. A couple weeks later, I heard back from him and he told me some of the things that went on and it was pretty much as I expected. I don't know if you live in a bubble, but that's kind of what it's like out there. It's kind of how the world operates. It doesn't operate on godly principles. The author is calling his audience and us to live differently than the world where this is concerned. When it has become increasingly normal to view adultery as irrelevant, Purity as abnormal, recreational sex as a right, and hooking up as an everyday occurrence. We're told to live differently, to keep spiritual intimacy within the bounds that God created it, which is marriage. To keep the marriage bed pure, he says. Keep it from defilement, the positive and negative. Sex is a Wonderful thing. God created it. It's good when it's in the right context. 
John MacArthur writes, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, and creative. You love that last word? I, I, I think he's going beyond just procreative there. It's a great thing. When it's in the right place. So when we place a high value on monogamy, we're showing that we live in a different kingdom. We show that we want to grow old together. The world always wants to celebrate trophy wives and sugar daddies, right? But we're to celebrate marriages that last 40, 50, 60, 70 years. That's our celebration. Living differently means staying with our spouse through good and bad times. The world will preach at you when things get tough, get out. Too tough for too long, leave. Get out while the getting is good. There's a more compatible person for you out there. All you have to do is find them. No, there isn't. We're all sinners. I love what one of my pastor friends said. He said, do you ever not do a wedding? He's like, well, you know, if, if one's a Christian and one's a non-Christian, yes. But other than that, it's just two sinners getting together and trying to make a life together. That's true. Richard Phillips writes, one of the greatest witnesses in our age will be Christian couples who faithfully meet struggles in their marriage with grace and power of God and stay together. Living differently in this way means we view love as commitment and not emotion. The world will scream at us. Love is emotion. It's all about chemistry. It's all about compatibility. It's all about that. But God tells us, no, no, no. Love is primarily and foundationally about commitment. Think of what God says a little later on in verse 5. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's just repeating the covenant vow that he has said to them. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. That's real love. Living differently means placing a high value on purity and not experience. This is the application for you singles out there, whether you be in high school, college, or beyond. Our culture will tell you again and again that virginity is an embarrassment. If you're a virgin, you should be embarrassed. That's what the world will tell you. It will tell you that sexual experience is what counts. Or, or how do you know you're going to be sexually compatible with the one you marry if you don't try it first? God calls each and every single person here to protect their virginity. Keep it and give it as a present to the one you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Living differently means to take what God tells us at his word about sex and marriage seriously. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's some pretty harsh words he says here. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. John MacArthur went on to write in the very next sentence that marriage Within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, and creative. But outside marriage, it is ugly, destructive, 
and damning. The other last major area that he covers is money. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can God, what can man do to me? There's no topic on which God spoke, or Jesus spoke more when he was on earth than money. There's no topic. The pearl of great price, the hidden treasure, the talents, the rich man and Lazarus. Eleven of his 40 parables was about money. Jesus knew that money needs to be addressed here because he knows that the love of money, not money, the love of money, can shipwreck faiths like Demas's in Second Timothy. It can cause people to walk away from Jesus like the rich man did, the young rich man. It can cause people to proclaim one thing and yet live another. Commentator Hewell Jones writes, For Christians to profess that they have better things, meaning the gospel, living in this unshakable kingdom, for Christians to profess that they have better things and yet live in a way that seems to say that earthly things are still better, is a contradiction in terms. So the question we must ask ourselves in application is, do we, where money is concerned, live a life of contradiction? Do we claim to have a better life? Jesus, I have Jesus. I have been transferred into the kingdom of light, this unshakable kingdom. This is better. Do we claim to have that? Yet, Live a Joel Osteen book title type of life. My best life now. Do we claim to love Christ? Yet our life professes another love. The easiest way to understand this, the easiest way actually to get to your heart in a very effective and efficient way is to ask what would happen if it was removed. That's, that's the easiest way to get at anything in your life. What, how would I react if it was removed? When an idol is threatened, you see more clearly what you're getting from that idol. So, for example, when a congregation's approval is taken away from the pastor, you see he spirals down into depression or anger, You notice that the pastor was getting his value from the people and not God. Or for example, when a job is removed from a person, when you lose your job, and that person sinks into the slough of despond, into the pit of depression, you begin to see that they were getting their purpose in life from that job and not from their Christian experience. And so when money is threatened, when money is taken away, when the stock market takes a massive turn down, when the fishing season is really bad, when the summer jobs that were supposed to be there weren't there, and now it's turning cold, 
when retirement looms and you're looking at that precipice and going, my income level is really going to change. Where's your heart? What's your reaction there? Where is your love? It's showing where your love is. It's actually showing where you're finding your ultimate security is what it's finding. That's the nerve that it's touching on. Where's your security? I think that's what Hebrews is trying to tell us here. Don't find your contentment in money, but in God. See, the root of contentment is security. When you're secure, you're content. When you feel secure, it's easy to be content. We just read about Paul being without food, being without a lot of things, and yet he's content. Why? Because he finds his ultimate security in Christ. That's the secret that he never tells us explicitly in Philippians. I don't put my security there. I don't look to that to give me firm foundation under my feet. So don't find your security in money, but in God. That's what the two quotes from the Old Testament are telling us. Look at that. In verse 5, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a quote from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. When Joshua is going into the promised land, into fight all these giants, literally, and cities like, like uh, that have these huge walls. No. I am with you. Find your security in me. Not in your ability, not in the number of army men you have, but in me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same with Psalm 118 that's quoted here. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have to remember that the gold and silver are all God's. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And he's our God. And he's going to take care of us. Find your security in him. He is your security blanket. And if money is your security blanket, God is calling you right now to begin to give that up. You know, the term security blanket didn't come into our vernacular until the 1950s. You know how it came into our vernacular? Through the comic strip, Peanuts. Some of you may notice, know this person. He's Linus. Linus was the intellectual of the, of the comic, if you've read this. He was always well-informed, espoused wisdom, and, and was often waxing philosophic. But he was a character in contradiction. He had all that head knowledge, yet he's shown most of the time just like this, with his thumb stuck in his mouth and a security blanket pressed onto his body. Storylines throughout the years involve Lucy trying to do away with the blanket, disapproval of it from Linus's mother and Lucy's unseen grandmother, Snoopy, frequently would steal this security blanket. On April 11th, 1983, Linus claimed that he didn't need his security blanket anymore. 
Yet on April 23rd of that same year, he wanted it back. Finally, in 1989, after 35 years, he gave it up for good. This is the picture of some Christians where money is concerned. They say they love Jesus, but they clutch something else really tightly. It can be anything. It can be a multitude of things. God's word here is is saying some people clutch money like this. It's their security. They can't give it up. They clutch it. They care for it. They keep it wherever they go. They can't imagine life without it, just like Linus can't imagine life without this security blanket. They love, they come to love money. Like Linus, there comes a time to give it up. Place our security in something else. Something else more eternal. Something else that, that will never ever deteriorate, never ever go away, never ever leave you. God. It's time to give up that security blanket. It's time to trust the words of Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and for the ways that you have challenged us today through it. Lord, I pray that this application, that you will take its spirit and apply it to each of our hearts perfectly as you will. Soften our hearts where they need to be softened to receive correction, rebuke, training in righteousness, and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.